Welcome to episode 909 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Radio team, welcome along to episode 909 of I Am Talk with Coach John Newsom, Bevan James Isles. How you going, mate? I'm pretty good, Bevan. Yourself? I, I didn't recognise you when you worked in. I thought a policeman was at my door. I know. An 80s policeman. That's right. Got the mo on the go. He's got the mo on the go. You actually, do you pull it off? Yeah, I think you pull it off. No, I'm not so sure. Yeah, yeah. I am not so sure. It's got, <laughs> I said to my mate, it's got 72 hours to go. He goes, oh no, you've got to keep it till the end of the tramp. I said, oh, really? So it's coming off on Friday. What's the tramp? We're doing the Kepler, which is a uh, oh, three yeah, walk down in the south, southern part of New Zealand. Beautiful walk, apparently. When are you doing that? Tomorrow? Yep. Start tomorrow afternoon and then sort of just 10K tomorrow afternoon. Then we've got Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Good stuff. Yeah. I Am Talk is proudly brought to you by... Well, we're doing a special show this week. So it's, it's not brought to us by anybody. Well, it's okay. all about patrons. It is. I'll get our patrons up um, because we're doing a special show. Bevan can explain. Okay, right so now. this week it's going to be a little bit different because it's the time of year and when not much is really happening in the sport. So we thought we'd kind of add to our legends of portfolio of interviews. And so this week we've got Crowy on and it's part one of Crowy basically because... Craig he, Alexander. Craig, oh, it's, well, yeah, well, most people know Crowy, surely. I hope so. Um, Craig Alexander is going to be on and uh, it's basically part one because he only had an hour and unfortunately we only really got, we didn't even talk about Iron Man. Yeah, but that was a good part because um, I, we'll talk about Iron Man for sure but lots of people know a lot of those stories, yeah. whereas they won't know the stuff pre-Iron Man. So I was, uh, that's what I kind of wanted to focus on. Yep. And so uh, so we're going to have Craig Alexander on. And so basically that's all we're doing is we're basically just going to put him on. It's basically like an hour of listening to Crow. He's great interview. Um, and so, yeah. So, but we are going to say thank you to some of our patrons. John, the Mountain Snail Hancock, Colin, the Convict Bielowski, and Jeremy, Special Agent Ryan. Thank you to all of those people and all the people who are patrons of the show so we're not gonna muck around let's get straight into it do you want to think anything about crowy before we start ah, we'll talk about it afterwards three-time world champion i'm in world champion yeah yeah 70.3 world champ two times 70.3 world champ did he win the that? world did he win, win that? got second yeah. you'll hear that when i do my next little intro in about <laughs> five seconds time <laughs> okay here we go <laughs> here is craig alexander aka crowy yes righto team um a name a lot of you will have heard of if you've been around the traps with triathlon. And even if you haven't, you should have heard of this man. He's a three times Ironman World Championship, along with uh, some silverware as well. Two times 70.3 champ, and also got a silver from the ITU World Long Distance Champs. And uh, general legend of our sport, who I've known for a little while. So his name's Craig Alexander. Welcome back to the show for a Legends of Triathlon podcast, Craig. Hi, boys. Uh, you use the term loosely, but I'm happy to be here. Oh, mate, you are definitely a legend. Now, I, I, I was at the, by the pool on Saturday, and I mentioned to my father-in-law, I said, we're getting you on, and he's a very avid sports watcher, not really triathlon specifically, but he was watching the um, the PTO, I think it was US Open, not that long ago, and he said to me, oh, that guy, he was uh, he was really good on the commentary, really good insight. And he said, make sure you ask him uh, how he got the nickname Crowy, and I think you've answered that on the podcast before, but how did you get the nickname Crowy? A long time ago, um, 
I think it was yeah, it was nineteen ninety seven. So I was still at uni. Actually, I think it was the year we met, John. I think we met in ninety seven over in Europe, racing for Malus, or was it ninety eight around that time? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I was still a full time uni student, but I was starting to race as a pro triathlete. I got the pro card or the license from Triathlon Australia, and um, it it was it was November ninety six. Actually, I did the Auckland uh, IT World Cup race down at the Mm. Viaduct, and I finished fourth, which was a big surprise for a young uni student against some of the legends in the sport. But on the basis of that result, I got invited to an Australian team training camp about four weeks later um, up in Threadbow in the sort of the snowy mountain region. They were doing an altitude camp. And uh, a lot of the best triathletes that Australia has produced were on that camp, some of the best in the world at the time. Greg Walsh was there, to to name a few. Jackie Gallagher, um, I think Emma Carney was there. So... It was a collection of, I guess, the best triathletes in Australia. And, yeah, we were just on a training camp. And I think it was a Sunday. We'd done a long run in the morning and a swim and we're sitting around watching uh, the Surf Ironman racing, which I know is also a big sport in New Zealand. Mm. Um, They used to have a round over at Piha um, in the big surf. And a guy flashed across the screen called Jonathan Crow. um, I can't remember if it was Welshy or Chris Hill. There was a bunch of us watching together. Well, she was there, Chris Hill, Trent Chapman, Jace Harper. And one of the boys said, you you look like that guy. <laughs> and um, So, yeah, forever after I was known as Crowy. And, I mean, I didn't really protest. I, there's, I think there's worse nicknames you could have. So, yeah, yeah. But um, about two years later, it was that coincidentally, we the triathlon partnered up with the Surf Ironman. We had a... Um, you guys would remember the the Formula One series that we had, yes, the original right. Super League, I guess, for mm. for people who are new to the sport. But one year we partnered up with the Surf Ironman. It was called the One Summer C, uh, Series. So they'd do the surf in the morning and then the triathlon in the afternoon. And I got to meet Jonathan for the first time. And, yeah, there was an uncanny resemblance. So I guess yeah. it was a good nickname. But. Oh, it's certainly stuck pretty pretty well over the years. Um before triathlon, though, I know you're a, a footballer before triathlon, but I, I was looking up your first triathlon result I could find, and it was at the 1994 World Champs in Wellington, um, where you raced as an age grouper. And this, it was quite interesting because it was in the 20 to 24 age group. You were 10th, but the winner was Tim DeBoom, um, <laughs> interestingly. Yeah. And actually, in third place in that race as well was who I was rooming with at the World Champs, uh, a guy you won't remember, a guy called Glenn Hurley. Um, but I, Mate, also... I do remember him. Yeah, I know. I know Glenn really well because he came to live. He came to live in Sydney shortly after that race, and we yeah. started training together. Oh, nice! Yeah. Bloody hell, small. And also another guy that nobody else will know, but James Beach also beat you on that race as well. Um, just to <laughs> rub it in. But to going from tenth in the uh, the in an age group at the ninety four Worlds uh, through to the following year, uh, one year later, you finished eighth at the Sydney World Cup in what was a strong field. What the hell happened in the space of uh, 12 months? Oh, a lot happened. I mean, that race in Wellington was, I think it was my second ever Olympic distance race. Mm-hmm. My first ever one was the Australian champs three weeks before where I qualified to make the team. So, nice. you know, I just started in the sport. As you guys would would know back then, juniors wasn't under 23. It was under 20. Yeah. And once you got over 20, you're either a pro or you you went into your age group. So I... I'd never come through the junior ranks. I started as an age grouper in the sport. Um, and that was interesting. It was made, it was, that was a great, uh, 
a great trip over to Wellington. I think I was third or fourth off the bike, but I had terrible shin splints. Mm. And it felt, felt like the whole world ran past me in that. I mean, we didn't see Tim the Boom. He was gone. But mm. um, I th I, from memory, there was a quite a decent-sized group of us who got off together. And, um, yeah, some good good names in, in that. Glenn Hurley, yeah, became a good mate and a good training partner the following mm. year in um, in Sydney. And also I got to know Tim quite well over the years. But I think what just happened was, mate, I just started training consistently, got injury-free, and... Um, I feel I always had, I guess, natural talent. You hear the, you hear the term used a lot. What, what does it even mean? I, I, you know, through high school, my main sport was, was soccer or football. I played until I was 19 or 20 years of age and I played to quite a high level. So we, we did a lot of fitness, a lot of running. Um, you know, I was training most afternoons, playing usually two games on weekends. And I think that was a good sort of, uh, platform to come into triathlon, the aerobic conditioning. It's it's different running. It's probably a lot more explosive and a lot more agility, but a, a game still goes for 90 minutes. It's a long time. It's like a long run, I guess. Mm -hmm. So um, I kind of felt like I always was a good runner. I think most soccer players, good soccer players are, are good runners. They have good fitness. I mean, I think running is the basis for a lot of sports. So, and I know that, you know, in high school, when, when I turn up at the athletics or cross-country carnivals, I'd, I'd do well. I'd usually make it through to regional or state. And then, you know, I'd get my ass handed to me when you actually came up against the kids who were training specifically. But I always felt comfortable running, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. So, yeah, but it was interesting, though, at that first race in Wellington, the run let me down. I'd, I, had, mm -hmm. I had shin splints, which is the curse of a lot of people new to the sport. And what's crazy about that is I was actually studying to be a physio, so I should have been injury-free. I should have known the things to do. But um, Do as I say, what does they do? Yeah, that, that's that's exactly right. But that was a great trip because I remember at the after party, I mean, I, one of the first things that happened on that trip was at the airport on the flight over, I ran into Greg Welsh, um, you know, for the first time. He just won Hawaii a couple of months oh, or a wow. month before. And he, he wasn't he wasn't coming to Wellington to race. He was coming over to do commentary. But I bumped into him at the airport and, um, you know, he was probably the reason I got into the sport. Um, mm. And then at the race itself, at the after party, I ended up having a beer with Spencer Smith, who won the elite race, yeah. won the pro race that year. And, um, you know, he was only a couple of months older than me. And I, I got chatting to him and I thought, wow, I mean, this, this guy's so young and he's the world champ. But he told me about his history in the sport and he'd been doing it a while and, so that was a great trip. But, yeah, I mean, I guess it's – it was an incredible 12 months. No, nothing really changed to answer your question. I know I'm going off mm. on tangents here. I was still a full-time mm. uni student. What what probably changed was just a fire was lit under me, a passion for it. I got to meet some of the legends of the sport. I got to realise I really loved the sport. I liked the people in the sport. I liked the training. Um, so I just immersed myself more in it. I got my shins fixed up, went and saw a podiatrist, got some orthotics, um, started doing some of the exercises that I was prescribing to other people who, as a physio. Um, yeah, just got injury-free and got more consistent with my training. But, yeah, that it was interesting because a few months on from that, and most of the great athletes of the time, as you guys know, I mean, Australia and New Zealand is sort of very similar in that if you're a great triathlete from down in this part of the world, you, you travel to the Northern Hemisphere um, during our winter, their summer, because that's when a lot of the big racing was on. So a, a lot of the best athletes – left our shores and I just trained on my own during winter 
but I did a I did a big duathlon out at Homebush. Actually, it was at the oh, it was at the Olympic venue. They just they started building the Olympic precinct in in Homebush, and we did a big duathlon. It was a powerman duathlon, and Jonathan Hall, who was the world duathlon champ, won the race. And I, I think it was a New Zealand guy. Was it Graham Pearson? Who was the great triathlete? Yeah. Oh, Matt Breck or Graham Pearson? Maybe no, it Graham wasn't Pearson. Matt. I, I know Matt. Yeah. Anyway, I finished third behind those two guys, and they were well established athletes one was the duathlon world champ and he was a fair way ahead of me but i finished third in the race and it was on the basis of that result that ta offered me a start at the world cup race that you mentioned a couple of months mm. later so um it was a different time in the sport you know the president of ta rang me himself and just said you know you really should be um racing with a pro license and i'm like well you know what's a pro license how do you get one and he said, you know, the sport's getting more structure to, to race in these pro races. You you can't just can't just enter. You need to be invited or to be eligible. So they offered me a pro license and an invitation to that first World Cup race. Just at that moment in your life, you, you're training to be a physio. At what moment did you go, I want to be a pro athlete? Because obviously you're a good football player, but you obviously weren't thinking oh, I was going to be a career in football. So there's a shift in your life and the direction of your life. Well, I wanted to be a pro footballer. Okay. <laughs> uh, I still feel that I'm a, I still feel that I'm a, hope. a pro There's footballer hope. who ended up doing triathlon. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, I guess for one reason or another, it didn't work out. And usually when it doesn't work out as a pro athlete, it's, it's because you weren't good enough on the days that counted. And, um, you know, so I always had this burning desire just to be a full-time athlete. That's what I wanted to do. Um, but when the soccer dream sort of ended, you know, I, I just got into the sport. Really, it was my mum who, who got me into it. I was I was at university. I'd had a hernia operation, a repair. I was just floating around really aimlessly, not doing much, going to the uni bar a lot. And my mum sort of one night said to me, you know, you, you used to be so active. You should should get back into some exercise. So I'd, And I'd been thinking the same thing. I was getting restless just living the uni life. So I just started running um, to get back in shape and that led to doing some biathlons, as we used to call them. They're now aquathons. And, but I always felt I could be good at sport if I applied myself to it. I just, I, it wasn't a, an arrogance or a confidence. I just, I just felt, you know, it was what it sort of came from. And then, and then what I guess reinforced that was speaking to Spencer Smith that night. He said, just got to train hard, son. Just, just got to train hard, lad. I think <laughs> yeah. that was his exact words. Yeah. Yeah. Just got to train hard, lad, and keep training. And I thought, wow, that's, and I, and I think, as you guys know, when you when you come into the sport, in a lot of sports, you don't get to see or feel the best. But in our sport, as an age grouper, you're right there with the pros. You get to compare times to them, and you know you get to meet them and chat to them and and touch them. It's 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 right there in front. Of you. I think it's one of the great things about our sport as a young up and coming athlete. You really get to see the level, and I just thought. Wow, I mean, I can see where they are and where I am, and that's it's quite a ways away. But if I keep chipping away, so to answer your question, mate, I always felt like I could, I could certainly narrow the gap from where I was to where they were. I didn't know I was going to go on to win world titles, but I just thought, you know, I think it's one thing I brought from my soccer playing days into triathlon was just the resilience. I didn't want to. I, I felt I'd let myself down by by sort of when the going got tough with the football. And, and you just don't know. Sometimes, I mean, I was only a teenager. I was 15, 16. You, sometimes you don't know better. You think there's going to be other opportunities or, you know, I think I thought at the time that 
to be a professional footballer, you had to make every team and you had to be the best in every team you were in until you made the national team. And you look at the best people and you think, you know, I grew up watching Diego Maradona. I thought, oh, that guy's, he's probably been a superstar from when he was six years old. You just think that's the path. But then as you get older and a bit more insight and you read a bit more and learn a bit more, you find out that the people who go on to be great have the same challenges as everybody else. They just hang in there. They get great advice. They get some luck. You know, you need a little luck for sure, but they they hang in there. And so that that's really all I brought into triathlon was just, you know, don't fold up your tents and go home when it gets tough. Hang in there. So I didn't think I was going to go on to win world titles, but I thought I could I could improve a lot at the sport. And I just, I loved the sport, the idea of training every day and, and chipping away at it and um, slowly, you know, monitoring your progression and, and um so, yeah, that, that was my mindset. It wasn't really – I didn't come into the sport thinking I'm going to win everything. I, I didn't know I could win anything. It, was it a case of, you know, through the, through the 90s, you were getting lots of sort of fifth through 15th type placings on the World Cup. Mm. Now, there's a lot of other races that people don't see on there. But, you know, if you sort of take yourself up to probably about – I met you in 98, and you are sort of, yeah, in that range. In France, you'd win some races, World Cups. I guess when you got a, when you were able to get a start, it was somewhere in generally fifth through 15th. Was it a case of just sort of hanging in there? Um, and, and how are you sort of making it all work financially and stuff? Yeah, well, that's a great question because you don't just turn up and win. Mm. And and even if you look at people who sort of their winning window was earlier in life, like a Spencer or a Simon Lessing or even an Ali Brownlee, they started early. Mm. I mean, there's no shortcutting that sort of 10 years of grind you've got to put in to get world-class aerobic conditioning. It just, there's no shortcutting it. I mean, I think you can have some natural talent in terms of maybe some genetic predispositions cardiovascularly or even biomechanically be more efficient than somebody else. But there's a ton of work that has to go into it be before that becomes a differentiator between you and someone else at the world-class level or at any level. So, um, you know, I, I think it was an understanding of that. What helped me was studying to be a physio when we were learning the principles of physiology and endurance training. And, you know, I remember clearly um, the things we were learning about, you know, writing a, a great training plan for somebody. And we studied this and it was about repetition and consistency. Um, there's no shortcutting that, that that's what you need to do. That's how we improve as humans, whether it's getting stronger, fitter, faster, or acquiring a motor skill, it's repetition. And the more reps and the more good reps, the better. So I think learning that as a student helped me understand and set expectations that, you know, I'm not going to start in triathlon and be a world champion six months later. It just doesn't work like that. Um, so, you know, having that, having that knowledge helped me and it helped me set expectations and, and set long-term goals and shorter-term goals along the way. So, the long-term goals were obviously trying to push towards the front end of big professional races, but the shorter-term goals were more tied into my own performances in lowering times in the pool and on the track and, um, you know, performance on the bike and making sure that I was sort of progressing the way I needed to and also working on mental development, you know. I mean, we all know athletes who had all the physical talent in the world. You would train with them and then they, you'd turn up in a race and they wouldn't win a race. And that was another thing that I learned, actually, we just we studied a lot of a lot of behavioral science 
in physiotherapy because as a physiotherapist, you're setting training plans for people of all different personalities and, and the way they're wired and, and trying to make sure they're compliant and stick to their training mm. plan and how do you do that. So you're understanding the way people are wired and motivations are different and mindset's different. So I, I learned early on that, you know, I had to work on mental development as well as physical development. You want to make sure that both are keeping pace with each other so that when you're physically ready to win races, you're also mentally ready to be able to, to do it. And you understand that now you're in that window and before you're in that window, and you're not quite good enough having the mental awareness to understand that you're still on your trajectory upwards and not to get despondent, but just keep working towards it. So having that education, that university degree helped me a lot, even though I never practiced as a physio, it helped um, my triathlon performance to no end. But I mean, I, I watched the sport a lot and I went back and looked and, and, you know, to your question, John, I mean, I think, I don't think I did many ITU World Cups in my career. It might have been 15 or 16 of them. I did quite mm. a few more points races, as they were called back then. And I won I won probably half a dozen points races on the actual World Cup, or as we now call it, the WTS. Mm. I think I had five or six top fives, mm. but I never really got on the podium. And, but again, though, I, I, I was I guess I had the insight to understand that I was bound, because I couldn't get regular World Cup starts, I was also doing a lot of non-drafting races and half Ironmans. So I wasn't tra training specifically as an ITU athlete. And, and you know, that, that was Greg Welsh who gave me, gave me that advice on that training camp that I mentioned down at Threadbo. He said the best athletes are versatile and, and consistent. So that's what you want to aim towards. He said, you know, you want to be able to – and that, that was a time when people were bouncing around between the distances a little bit more than they do these days. We don't see it too often now. I mean, I think what we see these days is athletes sort of progress through their career and step up in distance. We very rarely see what Christian Blumenfeld's yeah. doing, which is within one season bouncing between. I mean, yeah. if we so, but back back in in the late nineties, people were doing what Christian was doing, um, mm. probably because there was a, a little bit less depth. There were just less athletes, and there were, you know, back in those days, there was a, a really lucrative circuit of races in North America and also Europe that mm. were all different distances. So if you wanted to make money, you, you tried to perfect all of them. But I would often get a World Cup start and I'd only find out on the Wednesday or the Tuesday before. Mm. So it's not like I could do a three-month build-up running track. In fact, I never really ran track. I, I'd do hard running, but I was never on the track. And I remember three or four of those fourth-place finishes. One was in Ishigaki. One was in Malulaba. Um, one was in Auckland, New Zealand. I would be with the lead group up until 500 to go. And then I'd get out kicked usually in a sprint. Yeah. Um, I just didn't have that extra gear, but I was, I was, I mean, it wouldn't be unusual for me to be have, having done a half Ironman a week or two before I stepped into a world cup race. So mm. I think at that point in my career too, I was also, I just had the mindset that this is where I am at some level and, and somewhere higher than that is hopefully where I'm, I'm aiming to get. And, you know, it's not like that I, I wouldn't I wouldn't taper for races, but I, I had an understanding that if the goal is to actually win big races, I need to just, the, the focus is on continuous improvement. So I can't be having a 10-day taper into every single race. Um, as you know, John, when we're in Europe, you're racing a lot, you're training through a lot of the races. Um, so yeah, I was, I was kind of strategic in, if, if it was a big race, I'd have a full taper, but for most races, I'd just train through, hence the inconsistency with a lot of those results. Um, and you guys, 
also, you know, in a lot of those really competitive races, you can be half a percent off and that can be the difference between third and eighth. I mean, that, that ITU race you talked about in Sydney where I finished eighth, I think if you search the results, I, I want to say I was only four seconds from fourth spot that day. Mm. So yeah. there was like six of us in the in the finish shoot at the same time, and um, and it was interesting at the end of that race. I felt like that was a success. A success. I'd come eighth, mm. and Greg Bennett. Greg Bennett beat me by a second that day. He was seventh. He was filthy because fourth <laughs> was only a few seconds ahead. And and I guess that was the different stages of our career as well. He'd, I want to say, he'd come twelfth at that race in Wellington that you talked about. That Spencer Smith, Spencer Smith won. The, the ITU Worlds in Wellington, I think Greg Bennett had finished 12th in the pro race. So then fast forward eight months, we're, we're at a World Cup race and he comes seventh. He's, he's not super happy with that, whereas I'm one second behind doing cartwheels because I've come eighth. Yeah. So that just shows the difference in mindset and where we were in our careers and and all those factors play into your development as well and your progression. But tell us a bit about. Um, I want you to explain a bit about your couple of years you had in France because it's. Uh, it you you were there ninety seven. I was there ninety eight, ninety nine. You were there mm. ninety seven, ninety eight. I think. Um, just give people a bit of appreciation of what it's like. Um, going over there when you're coming from down under and you're going to, you know, back then we didn't have internet or we mm. sort of came in a bit. But just sort of explain how those couple of years panned out for you. Yeah, it's crazy to think. Now, like, our eldest daughter is turning 19 next year. She wants to go and run in college in the U.S. Okay. And I'm thinking that that is a lot different to when we travelled because with FaceTime and internet and the world's just a lot smaller place. So, but, yeah, it was just I had a dream. I mean, I I think that opportunity in France came about because of the fourth place finish in Auckland again. So that, that fourth place in Auckland opened a few doors for me. I, I met some of the French co coaches after that race. As you guys know, the French used to travel around on mass to all the World Cups. They'd always have a team. Um, I met some of the French French coaches in Auckland after that race, got to chatting, um, made some contacts and, yeah, got invited to race for a French club. So... Literally, I graduated from Sydney Uni with my degree in April slash May of 97 and was on the plane a week later. Mm. And my now wife, then girlfriend, Neri, was with me. And I remember sitting there on the runway at Sydney Airport thinking, what are we doing? We're going over for five months. We don't really know anyone over mm. there. And But I think they're the things you do when you're 23 years of age. And, you know, I'd, I'd, I was coming up on 18 months or that 97 was, it was the second year I had a pro license. So yeah, I kind of felt it's now or never. I'm young, why not have a go at it? Um, but you don't know what you're stepping into for better and worse. And <laughs> I think the main thing is if you always have an open mind around things, anything can turn out the way you want it to. Um, you know, you hear people say you want to be glass half full rather than glass half empty, positive attitude and and these are all cliches. And, and what does it actually mean? I think it means when you're in those situations, you just make the most of it. You make the best of it. And we were 23, young, nothing nothing to lose really. Had an opportunity, went over there. I was excited. I, I wanted to ride in the, the mountains in France. I wanted to get stronger. I wanted to race a lot and race good people. Um, you know, as you guys, again, you know, a lot of Australians and New Zealanders went over to race. There was a really thriving club scene over there. Um, you could race for your club and then step out and race all these other great races um, that were over there. 
so I was excited just to I saw it as an apprentice as an apprenticeship mm -hmm. really um, race a lot try and train with better people um, again coincidentally 97 turn up to race for this obscure little little club in in France and who else who should be the other sort of internationals on the team Mark O'Donnell and Bevan Doherty from New Zealand so um, and of course both those guys need no introduction especially Bevan he's he's one of he is one of the great legends of our sport and he and I struck it off immediately we, we had similar mindsets around training just wanted to get out and train every day and we were great training partners actually because we could push each other but we didn't we didn't actually race every single session when it was when there were hard sessions we would we would mm. we would really turn ourselves inside out and but on a lot of the easier days or the longer days we could you know I think there was a sustainability to our training we could just train well together and um yeah we it wasn't unusual to jump in a car and drive eight hours through mm. the night to turn up and race somewhere to jump in the car and drive another six hours and race the next day on the Sunday and I love those days. You you learn a lot. I can remember being so hungry in the back of that van and nothing was open. <laughs> yeah, on <laughs> <And> Sundays. <laughs> you'd put you'd pull into some gas station on the autobahn or whatever, and that's all that was open. And you'd be eating chips and drinking that drinking yogurt yop. Yeah. You haven't, you haven't eaten. Yeah. You're trying to get some energy for the race the next day. You'd sleep in the van and and you you remember those days, John. Oh, and that, yeah. that were that were fun days. I mean, and we we would always train together every day as a group. Um, and I think, you know, I felt that I was improving all the time and that was a really important part of my career for sure. Just, you learn to be self-sufficient and I was never really part of the national program. I was always sort of outside doing my own thing. And then you might get an email to say, do you want to do a world cup race here? And then I probably did one or two a year through that period. Um, but as you know, too, John, I was also doing half Ironmans because there was a lot of half Ironmans in France and they had good, good money, a lot of French francs up for grabs. So, yeah. um, and that's where I guess I, my mindset was different to an athlete who was maybe identified as a 13 or 14 year old in a junior pathway, came up doing triathlon um, with the national governing body. And I think not there's anything wrong with that. You get access to great coaching and other great athletes and that just wasn't my pathway. So, I just learned to be more self-sufficient, I guess. And the mindset was probably a little different to to that. And it was that if I don't make money, I'm on the next plane home. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, you know, there was, I wouldn't say there was a, a, a pressure to perform, but I, you know, starting late in the sport, I considered it late, although, I mean, in the end, it probably turned out for the best, but having a physio degree and, you know, I mean, in France thinking, it's not like I'm going home to a job or anything, you know, I need to make this work. And if, if it doesn't work, well, then I will have to go home and get a job. So, and I, I wouldn't say there was any fear factor attached to that, but it was motivating for sure. Mm. I mean, I just thought I've just got to do the best I can. And, um, but it's interesting because that line of thought at different times, I mean, I remember doing world cup races and finishing seventh or eighth, which is, I mean, that's a good result, right? At a mm. WTS race. And, but only breaking even because I wasn't part of the national governing body. I'd have to fund myself when I would get these opportunities and it might cost you two grand to get there. And, you know, you might win two grand for seventh spot and saying that ringing my, ringing Neri, ringing my wife and saying, maybe I should actually think about getting a job. You know, mm -hmm. maybe it's time. And she would say, well, 
you're still improving, aren't you? You're still getting better. I said, oh, I'm improving. Yeah, you know, basically every two or three months, I'm, I'm sort of leveling up with with different things and seeing improvements in my efficiency, my output, top end speed, all of those things. And she said, well, now it's not the time really to stop just because it's not financially viable at this time. You're getting good results, top tens. and But I guess that's the the smaller margin for error in a sport like Troth. And we hear that the current pros today even talk about it. Um, you know, I follow some pros on social media and at the end of every season, they give a breakdown of their finances and what it's like mm. to be a pro triathlete in the current environment. And uh, yeah, I mean, you can be getting fourths and fifths and seventh in races, but you're not really getting ahead. Mm. And so you, you are, I guess, in the upper echelon of athletes, but I mean, that's just the sport we're in. So mm. um, we, we, um, was it at 99, I think you probably went across to the States and, and maybe started focusing on those races. I don't think you're in Europe at that stage. And so I guess if that was the right year, um, was that a conscious thought to go across the States, try to make those big money races? And where did the Olympics kind of all fit in all this for you? Because for people that don't know this sort of era, Craig was doing well, as you said, but like there was probably 15 Craig Alexanders that mm. could have made the Olympic team. You got a few at the top, but there was probably 15 guys of a similar ability. So yeah, tell us about that shift to the States and what that kind of looked like. Yeah, so it was a bit later than 99. I didn't travel because Neri and I got married. So mm. I stayed at home and actually got a job laboring for a builder um, mm. during our winter. But we're still training. I was trying to knock out two, at least one, usually two sessions a day. Uh, but shorter daylight hours during winter and also working a sort of a, a difficult physical job. Um, the training was quite limited, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to get married and then disappear for five months. So um, Neri was working full time as an emergency nurse by then. It was probably the following year. And you're right at that point, 99, we had, you know, the U S always talk about their big four athletes uh, mm -hmm. Mark Allen, Dave Scott, Scott Tinley, and, and, and Scott Molina. In Australia, we on the men's side, we had a big three. We had Greg Welsh, Brad Bevan, and Miles Stewart. Mm -hmm. I think most people thought that they would make the first Olympic Games team. Things happen in sport. Obviously, Greg had to retire in 1999, um, so that year you mentioned with mm -hmm. a heart condition. Um, Brad got hit by a car actually the week before, no, the day before the first Olympic, Olympic selection race in Sydney. And Miles was sick, so that that opened the door. And as as history now shows, Peter Robertson yeah, walked straight through with incredible performances. Um, Waldo got in that team, and Miles got in the team, and that was the best team we could have fit. Feel, I think that was the best team on the men's side that we we could have um, put out at the game. So, but an interesting. I mean, your career has interesting moments where you can call them light bulb moments, or just um, sliding doors moments, whatever you like. But I, I was meant to be in the – so the first Olympic selection race was that IT World Cup race in Sydney, and it was mm. in April in 2000. And the criteria for the Australian men and women was you had to – if you won the race, you are automatically in, or you had to be the first Australian in the top eight, and you would you would make the team. Now, what happened was we had – quite a few Australians on the start line, but the week before the race, Triathlon Australia decided that they didn't, I don't know why, but they just didn't want so many Australians on the start line. So they, I got pulled out of the race. I think Trent Chapman did it as well. Um, Mark Lees, 
on the men's side. And I think on the women's side, it was a few others as well. And we we protested. We wanted to get in because we thought, well, it's a home race and it's an Olympic trial. Why not just put us all on the line and see what happens? But anyway, so what what happened was there were there were actually three World Cup races in three weekends. So there was the Sydney World Cup race. Then there was a World Cup race in Numea the following weekend. And then the third weekend was actually – actually, that was the World Champs. It was in Perth. So mm -hmm. it was two World Cup races and then the Perth World Champs on three consecutive weekends. So I got pulled out of the Sydney World Cup race, but I went to Numea. I, I decided to jump in and, and do the race in Numea, and I won it. I won the race, and Trent Chapman from Australia got second, and a Danish athlete called Jan Hansen got third. And I think if you go back and check the results, Jan had finished fifth at the World Cup race the week before oh, in geez. Sydney. Yeah. So, and that's, that, that's not me he's sitting, sitting here saying I should have made the team or anything, but as an athlete, that was a sort of a, Big it was a moment of validation for me thinking, well, I probably do belong at this level. Like right up until that point, I, I thought I can be competitive. I think I can, I can snag a top five in a race here or there against the best people. That's a completely different mindset to going into a race with all the best people and thinking, I, you know, if I do everything right here, I should be up, right up the pointy end. It's not saying you're going to win or get on the podium, but is if I perform up to my my capabilities and my potential, I'm right in the mix here. That that is a completely different mindset to going into a race and just trying to snag a top five or a top eight. So, and that was a, probably the first time there was a whole bunch of guys in Namia who'd raced Sydney the week before, and I beat them. So, um, and I was actually training with Pete Robertson at the time, and I remember I came home from that trip in Namia. And, of course, he had the Perth World Champs coming up mm. the following weekend. And we did an open water swim session just off the beach here in Cronulla. And he went on to um, get a bronze medal at that World Champs. I think Olivia Marceau won it. Yeah. Oh, it might have been a silver Robbo got. But he said to me on the Tuesday before, he said, mate, you should be racing in Perth. You should be there. And so I guess conversations like that and, and results like that, it made me believe that, yeah, potentially I, I should be. I'd never really thought my, my I guess if you're a 25 year old athlete now in 2024, you've grown up watching the Olympics. Um, there's been six Olympic cycles. I grew up playing and watching football and the only triathlon I'd ever seen was Hawaii. So that was my dream. And then triathlon got into the Olympics. There was talk. It might be a demonstration sport after Sydney. Who, who knew? It, it, it wasn't my dream. I, I was, I'd seen Hawaii. I'd met Greg Welsh at the airport in Sydney on his way to Wellington that, that was my dream. But now I'm I sort of my, my mindset's changing a little bit. I, I feel like I'm competitive in any I mean, I was a good swimmer and runner, which I think makes you well suited to IT racing. That, that doesn't mean you can't be a weak bike rider by any stretch in the imagination. Particularly in this day and age, I think what we saw guys like Gomez and Brownlee do was actually attack the bike. Um mm. But in the early days of IT, it wasn't always like that. You, you guys will remember some races were attacked, like the races that Craig Walton and Miles and Hamish were in mm. would be fast swims and fast bikes. But there, there could be races too where 50 guys would get off the bike together. Mm. Um, so I guess what that race in Namia did was I'd never really thought I was in the mix to to make any of the teams. or. But then after that, I thought, well, maybe I am. So and don't worry, I'm getting to the US question, John. I know that <laughs> I'm, it's just a long-winded way, but... This was the timeline that led me to the US. So post-2000, I thought, why don't I try for the Commonwealth Games in Manchester in 02? Um, so the th that what I had to do was perform well at Mooloolaba. Um, 
which was an IT race in early 2001. I did that. I, I finished third. Um, so I made the Australian team for the IT Worlds that year. And, but I was still doing, I still wasn't part of the, the funded. Yeah. So, so the weekend after Malulabara, I went up and raced a half Ironman in Cairns, which was a big race back in the day. And, um, had, I'd, I'd won the race the year before that had good prize money. I got invited back up. So even though I finished third at Malulabara, I thought I'm still going to go up. So I did, and I won the race again. After the race, though, I was I was stretching on the edge of a gutter, and I slipped off and tore tore my calf muscle. So I didn't really run much leading up to ITU Worlds that year, and had a couple of decent results. I think I got a an eighth or a ninth in Cornerbrook, which was an ITU race, and I think I got a tenth in Toronto in one of the lead up races. Finished twenty second at ITU Worlds in Edmonton, which I was actually happy with because I had been doing no running. And mm-hmm. I got in a front group. There was a front group of seven or eight guys that day. I got in the group. Um, there was sort of a breakaway in the swim. And then we worked hard on the bike. There was a couple of crashes on the bike. It ended up coming back together. But I guess the main thing for me was I'd made the train on squad for the Com Games um, through 2001. And so I committed to the, there was a whole list of criteria and you had to meet each one to make the team. So I was, I was meeting, I was checking the boxes Fast forward to the end of 2001, I went up to Noosa and had a great race, finished third. Um, so my form's coming around and the two selection races, the two final races were in January, February of 02. Unfortunately, I got the chicken pox and mm. didn't even get on the start line. So that meant I missed I missed the Com Games team and I missed IT Worlds um, for that season as well, which was in Cancun, Mexico. And I was really sick. That was the main thing. I was I was really sick. I didn't. I didn't get the chicken pox as a kid. Mm. So it knocked me around. I had about three months off training. Anyway, I was a little bit heartbroken because it was the first time in my career I'd actually said, I want to make this team. And it was a 12-month process. And I was checking the boxes nicely, probably in some of the best form I'd ever been in, was running track for the first time, running some really fast times in different races on the track. And yeah, didn't make it. And which led me to the US. So I finally got to your US question. And yeah. it was it was McKeeley Jones and her husband at the time, Pete Coulson, who said, and McKeeley was racing in Manchester. Actually, she'd made the team. I mean, McKeeley made every team and won everything, mm. but she's she's someone who I'd got to know through training around our area down here. Her and her then husband helped me a lot um, with advice. I mean, I had no coach. I was self-coached, so I would train with McKeeley a lot. And when I was sort of pondering what to do after coming back from the chickenpox, they said, why don't you come to America? So that, that's what I did. Um, so I went to the US, which was a blessing and a curse. Well, it wasn't really a curse. It was, it was only a blessing. Um, you know, they're the races that I'd seen in the 90s on television. St. Croix, Chicago, they're the races I'd read about in magazines. St. Croix I'd seen on television here in, in Sydney. So, you know... I guess I was always going to end up there sooner or later. And I did. And that probably wasn't a great move in terms of ITU racing because that was always used against me in the sense that I never just committed to a full season of ITU racing. Mm. And, you know, when I'd have discussions with the high performance manager, that would always come up. I I would only ever do one or two draft legal races a year. Um, And, you know, I guess I don't know. I don't know if, 
I had a black dot against my name because of that. But I mean, the high performance manager at the time was always transparent and he'd always told me this. So I guess at any point I could have immersed myself in ITU racing. But what I, I really loved the scene in the US. I went there that first year in 02. You know, it had been a long rehab from the chicken pox, but I ended up getting second at Oceanside, which was later in the year that year. I think it was May or June. Um, was leading the race right up until the end and, and was still suffering a, a few of the effects of the chicken pox because I could, like any virus, you, you can just, your energy can just drift away in, in a, you know, mm. in the click of your fingers. So, but I was starting to find some good form. And then at the back end of the season, I went and got third at Chicago. Craig Walton won the race. And then two weeks after that, I went to, um, oh, sorry, then the following week, I did an ITU points race in Boston, which I finished third in. Lessing won it. And I had a sprint finish with Paul Amy, of all people. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Amos got me in the sprint, but Tori's calf as he did it. <laughs> and, and then the week after that, um, went to LA and possibly one of the best short course fields I've ever raced in. Um, I think there were four or five ITU world champions. Craig Walton won the race. I finished second. Lessing was third. Olivia Marceau was in the top 10. He'd been the ITU world champ um, in 2000. Paul Amy was in the race with his calf strapped up. Luke Van Lied was in the race. Um, Spencer Smith was in the race. Brad Bevan. Um, These races you know, are all draft. Um, Non-draft. Draft, well, Non-drafting. And, and how, how well did that get policed back then? Because it was, you know, there's a reason why elite racing went draft legal so maybe just explain a bit about some of those races in the states because you, you know you said uh, they were the ones all in the magazines when you're growing up and they were mm. but when i do a search for craig alexander you know these days you, none of those results are showing up anywhere so they're like a race from history it's, so funny, you, <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that you know because someone sent me a photo from the race in la you know too the one i'm talking about and i went yeah. and searched the results and you can't find that that yeah. uh, that company who ran the LA Triathlon, I'm not sure their website's not there anymore. And yeah. um, which is a shame because that that race was a who's who. Um, Greg Bennett won it. Javier Gomez won the race. Waldo won it. Um, yeah, it's a shame. But that that was, and it used to attract a good field. But so Chicago was non-drafting. Mm. The following week in Boston was draft legal. And then LA the week after was non-drafting again. So you had to bounce between the two change your bike setup. But they they did police they did police the the drafting. Um and you had a lot of strong personalities back then like Lessing and Spencer. Yeah. You, you you didn't want to draft off off them. <laughs> um, and you know the, the courses were amazing too. Like if you ever raced in Chicago it was it was on foreshore drive which is like this five lane freeway. Mm. And the wind would come off Lake Michigan and yeah, you'd have to sit. You have to sit a fair way back. And, and NLA was even harder because the first twelve k from you'd swim at Venice Beach, and then you'd ride head straight twelve k straight up Venice Boulevard. And it was like a two or three percent false flat uphill, so it was wasn't super quick. You'd, you'd sit on about forty k an hour, but it was a slight uphill. It was a grind, high power the whole way, mm. and it had, it had spread out. But you had strong bikers. Conrad Stoltz was always in those races. Um, I remember that race in LA. It was a very quick swim in the surf. And Waldo, who was great in the surf, he cracked a little wave. And he probably had 45 seconds or a minute. And I came out of the water with Spencer and Simon. We were the next next little group out of the water. And the croc as well. Brad was with us. 
anyway, I got on the bike. I was riding well, and I I took off. Um, and funny little story, actually. I, I was on. I just had my head down, and I heard the draft marshal say, "No closer, Simon. No closer." So Simon must have been behind me, <laughs> and but yeah, it was kind of spread out. I mean. You, if you drafted, it would have it would have stuck out. I mean, some people mm. did. There was always people mm. you heard about yeah. doing it, and you always heard stories. And but yeah, I mean, there was a bit of surf on that day, and it just it just spread out. You were in ones and twos, and then what happened? About ten k into the ride, I got caught by Conrad Stoltz, who mate, he was a good bike rider. Of course, he led off the bike with Olivia Marceau Olympics. at the Sydney Olympics, yeah. and those two had led off the bike, and he had beat me two weeks before. In Chicago, while I had won the race, Conrad had got second, and I finished third. And I almost caught Conrad in the run, but I didn't. I didn't quite get there. But yeah, he came past me, and I remember him telling me after Chicago that he was going to put a bigger front chainring on to try and catch Waldo in LA in two weeks. <laughs> but I think it worked against him because there was a lot of uphill in LA, like that false flat uphill. He had like mm. a fifty. He had some huge chainring on him. <laughs> he came past me at ten k. But then when we got onto Sunset Boulevard and the back end of the course, there was a few uphills. I, I was able to – I didn't catch back up to him, but I had him – like at the end of the ride, he was only probably 50 metres in front of me. So he caught me at 10K and sort of opened the gap, and I chased him. And that helped my race because that, that created some separation from Simon and Spencer and everybody else. And But no, they, they were great races, man. And then the run was incredible because we – you ran from the Staples Centre where the, the transition is in the finish. We went up through Chinatown, up past Dodger Stadium. Um, that was the original run course before they changed it. They had a few issues, I think, with people going the wrong way and whatnot, so they ended up changing the course. But, um, yeah, it was – they were great races. But but to your point, and with the ITU, I just fully immersed myself in, in that style of racing. By the end of that first season, I'd, I'd got some sponsors who were paying me money. I felt like a professional athlete. Every race to me felt like Noosa. Like there was a big expo at the race. There was an industry around the race. All the industry companies were there. Um, the races had four or 5,000 people doing them. And, yeah, I started getting a few sponsors. And then when it came back time for IT racing, I wasn't allowed to wear my sponsors. And I, it just it just create, created a lot of friction. But I didn't – I wasn't against the IT racing. I mean, in 2003, I – um. By then, Accenture was sponsoring the sport in Australia. So our our national series was called the Accenture Series. And the first three rounds were like the triple super sprint, eliminators, and an enduro. But then the last two rounds were Olympic distance races, one in Mooloolabar, mm. one in St Kilda. And they were the two selection races for Queenstown Worlds, which was in New Zealand later mm. that year in 03. So I had a good series on the in the domestic series. I think I finished third in the series. Um but I didn't win either of the Olympic distance races, which were the um, selection races for Queenstown. I got second in St Kilda behind Bryce Quirk and mm. Hamish Carter finished third. Hamish and I had a sprint and I nipped Hamish right at the end. And at Bar, I finished third, but I was second Australian. I think Courtney Atkinson, I think Rasmus Henning might have won it. Mm. Courtney Atkinson got second, so he was the first Australian. He got the automatic spot. And then I finished third second Australian, but I didn't get picked in the team. Um, they were the two selection races I didn't get picked, which is fair enough. The criteria was that from those two selection races, they would pick a minimum of two people. They could pick more if they wanted, 
but they were only obliged to pick two, which is what they did. They picked two. So I went back to America and didn't do a, another draft legal race. Yeah. And um, they, they, they picked the rest. Uh, Sorry, well, mate, go on. No, you, you, you carry on. We, 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 I want to get on to talking a bit about some coaching and stuff because you, 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 um, you sound like you were self-coached most of the way. So this may be a very uh, short conversation <laughs> um, because I know in France, we kind of, everybody just kind of did their own thing and it sounds uh, really people who helped influence your career the most, you know, you mentioned Michaeli Jones, which ironically we're going to be speaking to after talking to you. Um, and who are some of the other key influences on your career? Greg Walsh. Mm. Um, you know, one of the crazy things was when, I started taking the sport more seriously. I was driving down to Southern Sydney to train a lot. I didn't grow up down this way. I sort of was born and grew up in the inner Western suburbs of Sydney. But there was, a, I guess, a, Cronulla was an epicenter of triathlon, kind of like the Gold Coast or Boulder. Or So I drove down this way to train. And then in 1998, Neri got a job at St. George Hospital. Um, so we decided to move down this way. And there were a ton of people to train with down this way. There were a lot of the uh, sort of the generation above myself, Mick Maroney, um, Tony Unicum, the Southwell brothers. They were all sort of professionals or semi-professionals. Um, Greg Welsh, of course. Brad Bevan was coming, would come in and train, do training stints where he'd stay with Welshie or, or whatever. Um, Chris McCormack was down here. McKeely Jones, Pete Robertson. Um, mm. So our group rides were just... Yeah, there's just a lot of great athletes yeah. and, and a lot of a lot of athletes who were probably older than I was, the generation older and on the back end of their careers, but a lot of athletes who were on the up and up like Pete and Macca and, um, mm. you know, starting to win big races. So, you, I mean, you would just jump in. There was a lot of group sessions. And, again, I had that background in, in physio. So I sort of understood the principles of endurance training and again, it was just a different era in the sport. I mean, I think if you did a Google search these days for triathlon coaching, a million names would probably come up. Mm. But back then, it, it was harder to get a coach. And a lot of the mm. coaches who were around were sort of a, affiliated with the the high-performance program. Um, you know, well, you when, when, you, when you went to Kona and stuff, when you were in your, your winning days, um, did you have much of a team around you? Or was you, cause you, or were you still, you know, did you have a manager or were you, were you kind of still doing your own thing? I had a manager, yes. So, again, stemmed from those early days in the, in the US. I started getting sponsors. So you're interacting now with companies and marketing managers. And so there's more and more stakeholders in your career. Um, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I, I won the Triple Crown in the US, which was a big deal. In 05, I won Lifetime Fitness, which was at the time the highest yeah. prized person in the history of the sport. It was the first triathlon that was live on television. So I'm getting more and more sponsorship. And I... Uh, Tried to get a few different managers. In the end, the best option was my wife, Neri. She ended up mm -hmm. managing my career. And, the, and my sponsors loved that. It was very, it was, there were easy um, interactions. They knew that she only had my best interests at heart and that Neri was very honest and just would work out what they needed and what we needed was that they were. But in 2009, um, when Neri fell pregnant with our son Austin, it was just too much. Our second, our second child. So, I went and got a manager who I then had for the next ten years. 
uh, Franco, he was amazing. And he and I knew him. He signed me to try to buy. Mm-hmm. So that's how I'd met Franco. He was in and around the sport. Um, so, yeah, he would, he would, I guess, engage on my behalf with, with the different companies within the sport. And he was amazing. He was always thinking outside the box in ways we could add value to the sponsors over and above just performances and results. Um, and that's, and that's where you're thinking changes as a pro athlete as well. It's, you are a high performance beast that you, you, you live or die on your results, um, as a professional athlete, but also, I mean, that's, that's one, that's one dimensional and that's one layer of value that you can add to companies and partners. Um, and with social media becoming a thing sort of in the late 2000s and 210s, and you had to, you had to be. I guess, yeah, you had to have more strings to your bow than just that. I think um, marketing managers were starting to ask for more in regards to um, things that you could offer. So, you know, the team that you mentioned, there, there were people around who would help me think about those things. I had a, a guy I worked with, Matt Steinmatz, who owns a company now called 51 Speed Shop. He would fit me on my bike and also help me with um, – with my training programs, he would take me motor pacing when we were up in Boulder. He would travel with me to a lot of races, as would my manager. Um, and I've got another long-winded story, but I, I won't give it to you. But I ended up in 2006. I was finally done with the IT. I was meant to go to the test event in Beijing. It didn't come off. Um, so right then and there, I decided I wanted to go to 70.3 Worlds at the end of the year in Clearwater and to Kona the following year. So that was my transition from short course racing into long course. I was lucky enough to win the 70.3 Worlds a few months later. That qualified me for Kona. Mm. I went and got second on debut in Kona without a coach, but then I, I went and got some help. A guy called Nick White, um, who was based in Tucson, Arizona, and I'd met him through Chris Carmichael. Mm. Um I'd met Chris Carmichael. He lived in Colorado Springs. I lived in Boulder through a mutual sponsor. Um, I think Chris was the first guy who ever got me in the wind tunnel. Um, but anyway, after finishing second in Kona, I felt I needed more help. So I got a, a guy called Nick White to help me. Uh, he was amazing. He was one of, he worked under the banner, like Carmichael training systems. Yep. He worked yep. for Chris. He was a guy about my age. I just, I felt he was awesome. He was a great communicator. He had great ideas. Um, I know I would never challenge him a lot, but I'd ask him because of course I'd come from a place with my own education and my own experiences and we would go back and forward on ideas. And in the beginning, it was hard for me to, tr- to hand over the reins a little bit and trust, but I always had a lot of input and he was just so articulate in explaining what his thought processes were for different things. I thought, Oh, that makes sense. I mean, let's give it a whirl. Um, so I had Nick. He was amazing. Um, Dave Scott later in my career helped me um, basically with the, the strength and conditioning. I was, I was getting older um, and he, he wrote a, a really specific strength and conditioning uh, plan for me. I mean, it helped that he was up in Boulder as well, so I could see him regularly. Uh, I'd often jump in with his swim squad. But he, he wrote me a strength and conditioning plan. And, and someone who always helped me a lot as well was – McKeeley's now ex-husband Pete, Pete Coulson. Um, yeah, I'd always bounce ideas off him, things I needed to do or change. Um, and McKeeley was always a good help too. I could always email her and ask her. Well, I mean, when I first stepped up to Ironman Racing, I did. I emailed 
McKeely and I rang, I rang Walsh actually and asked them some of the things I should be doing. And uh, so I, I was lucky. I had access to those people. And, and they all said the same thing though. You know, they all said, well, we'll tell you what we did, but in the end you need to work out what works for you. People are coming from different places in terms of their training background. So they might, they might have a different focus moving forward into Ironman. Of course, in Ironman pacing and nutrition is more of a thing. You can't just, the gun goes off in short course races and you just go top, top end for an hour 40. Um, it, it's a little bit different. I, I kind of feel 70.3 or half Ironman racing is very close to Olympic distance, non-drafting racing. And both those things are quite a way away from Ironman racing um, mm. in terms of the training and the nutrition and other, other elements of the race. So, but yeah, I always had access to great people who had, the experience or had won the races that I wanted to do and wanted to hopefully do well in. Um, and they were yeah, all, always Australians very gracious. won everything. Uh, you guys have done okay as well. <laughs> I, um, look, uh, we would do another podcast another day for, for all the Hawaii times and long distance stuff. And I thought it was really cool that we spoke probably about things you don't get to speak a lot about in terms of the, the early years, um, rather than talking through the, the Kona wins the whole time. I always have one random question on it because we know you're time precious. But your partner has been such an important part of your life and sport, but sporting career as well. Um, and we often don't hear much about the partners. And so can you talk about why she's been so important, not just as a loving partner, but as, as an athlete? Yeah, I think it's, you know, on different occasions, I've, I've been asked to speak to corporate groups and to schools and to junior athletes. And, you know, people want to know, about your story and is there anything in your experience that's relatable to what they do? And, you know, I guess there's a few fundamentals to be successful in anything. I mean, it's going to take time. And, and one of those things is you, one of the non-negotiables I think is you need to surround yourself with, with great people, with good people. And that starts at home. You know, you have a team and you, you talked about the team, John, before, and, but the core is your family. And then there's different layers around that, maybe training partners, coaches, advisors, role models, managers, whatever. But Neri was with me from the start. The year we met was the year I started in the sport. I mean, she's the one who dropped me at the airport when I flew out to Wellington for that <laughs> World Champs. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we'd only just started going out that year. And I remember she'd written me a card. She told me to read on the flight over. And it had just talked about how proud of me she was for the training and for, you know, doing something crazy like, trying to race at a world champs. And so even from the beginning, she was so supportive um, of me just as a person, not even the athlete, but, you know, that love and that emotional support, you, I think you need There's, you know, we hear people talk about it's a long journey and it's, it's, it's a lot of peaks and troughs and it's all of that. It's all of that and more. You've got to weather the storm and, you know, you've got to ride the waves when they come along, but you've got to weather a few storms along the way as well. So, so I think the first part is just that unconditional support that someone's always got your back, um, always in your corner, regardless of what happens. It's a nice feeling that you've got those people. And and I had a few. And Neri, Neri was the main one. But also Neri got to know the sport really well. Mm. Um, you know, she was there day in, day out watching me train. She was at most of the races. She got to knew she got to know my competitors very well as well and their personalities. Mm. So I think um, 
not only was she an expert in me and she knew the things that she needed to say or that I needed to do to get the most out of myself, she got to know the sport very, very well. She always had incredible advice and insights about just different things that mm. were sport-related, that were triathlon-related. She just got to know the sport really well. And that combination of knowing me and knowing the sport, I think she always had just really great advice and insights. So um, it, is, it is super important. I mean, could have I been a good athlete? Without that support, maybe. Would have I had the career? No, absolutely not. I mean, I think there's also something nice about going on a journey with somebody else. You know, we hear people talk about professional sport being a selfish pursuit. And I, I don't, I mean, I don't know, maybe I was a selfish person back in the day. I kind of feel I was, there was a lot of self-analysis, you know, how's my training going? Am I getting enough sleep? How's my recovery? All those things. There's a lot of self-analysis, I, 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 me, me, um, which I think there needs to be if you're paying attention to and checking all the boxes that you need to check. And it can be an isolating experience as well, as you guys both know, doing doing the sport. So I think very important, It's you, you need that. I mean, I think if you look at all the great careers, male or female in sport or in business or anything, you those people tend to have one or two people in their life that are just their ride or die. They're in it for the long haul. And, yeah, I mean, it's – I guess it's just an important part of it. And I, from, for my part, it was just so nice to share the journey with somebody else. I remember at different times in Boulder, a couple of occasions come to mind, a lot of the pro athletes didn't trouble with their families back in the day. And I remember being out on a um, a ride with Cam Brown one day, and we were just we were just talking about it. Like there were pros, like he he was Jenny and his kids were at home, and he was missing them. He was missing them incredibly, and you know I thought I couldn't do it that way. I mean, I, I would get homesick if they're in the kids' word here. I I had the utmost respect for Cam because I thought that's that's a sacrifice that he and Jenny are making. That's that's a big deal. But then the conversation Tenny was like, you know, but sometimes when I get home from a long training ride, I'm, it's kind of nice that I can just hop into bed and have a sleep and there's no distractions or – so, you know, either way has its pros and cons. I, I just felt – and, again, there's no there's no right or wrong way or there's no one size fits all. And it's very expensive to take your family. Mm -hmm. So there's that aspect of it as well. But I always felt for me whatever downside there might be to having your wife and kids there running around – the upside far outweighed it, the emotional, just that, just being there with your family. And, mm. and I think most athletes would have done it that way had had it been an option, I guess. So I feel very lucky that it was an option for us. Um, yeah, and I always respected the athletes who just went on those longer stints, particularly when they had kids. It's just, it's a, it's, it's a big sacrifice that you make. And, um, you know, Every athlete who makes that sacrifice, you know they're maximizing every second of every day to make sure it's they're honoring the the commitment of the people around them. So and it's school yeah, holidays it's now, a, so we've got to let you get back to your family as well. But no, in, in terms of what you're up to these days, um, you know, you've got Sans Ego, um, you know, obviously play on words from from the French days, but just any plugs on on things you're doing at the moment or anything you want to do. By the way, there? this is part one. We're getting you back for part two because we haven't even touched Iron Man. So this is <laughs> yeah. part one. 
Yeah, we got we got a lot we got a lot more to discuss. I mean, <laughs> you cut me off when I was halfway through O three, John. I never got through O three. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, yeah, we got we got the, the coaching business is going well. Of course, I think obviously the world stopped for two years there. There were no events, there was no yeah. training, there was no. But last year we got we got we got her up and running again. We had to, we had a training camp in Mallorca in March and nice. another one in the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina in July. This year we've got um, training camps. We've already sold two out. Actually, the first one in Mallorca in March, and then we've got another one in Mallorca in in early April. Mm-hmm. And then we're heading to in late April. We're heading to the Blue Ridge Mountains again to a facility called Firstborn. Actually, um, I met a guy, Michael. Uh, back in Kona 10 years ago, and his plan was to build kind of like a training house or a training facility um, in this beautiful part of uh, America called the Blue Ridge Parkway, and lo and behold, he got it done. So we ran our first camp there in July last year, and we've got two scheduled. He's got a couple of properties over there. We've got one in North Carolina, third week in April, and then West Virginia. Nice. No, Virginia, sorry, not West Virginia. Better get the state right. Um <laughs> And then potentially that that's four camps we're having, and then we've got a fifth one in August, which will either be in Kona or it'll be in um, Belgium, cool. um, right near where the Tour of Flanders are. So something something that yeah, an exciting little project. So yeah, got got plenty going on there. We've got yeah, we've got an online community with San Zigo. We've got a lot of great coaches who we collaborate with, and they all have athletes. So and we're we're fortunate to have a lot of great um, industry partners. So. Yeah, we've got a lot of good things going on, so that that keeps me busy. Um, I sit on the board of one of my previous sponsors, so that's been interesting. That's been a good education for me, seeing in on the board meetings and understanding the machinations of everything that goes into running a company. Um, you know, I, my, my role there is to just come from the sort of, I guess, the athlete's perspective, but obviously you're, you're going through a lot of, Profit and loss statements, the financials, marketing strategies, and there's so much that goes into it. So that's been great. I've really enjoyed that experience. Um, also working with another little startup company in Australia called Brood, which is really it's 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 using using business consultancy and the connection between the corporate world and the sporting world, which has always been a strong connection, but the proceeds of that then to go into funding young young athletes that potentially slip through the net with national governing bodies. Um, nice. So look, looking at working with the governing bodies. So mm. I mean, by definition, when you get government money, you can't fund everyone. Um, mm. And usually the funding goes on short cycles for the next major games, world champs or Olympics, whatever that is. And the people who fall into that category category of being eligible for the funding are world-class already. And uh, Yeah, so we're trying to, I guess... Uh, not not turn the model on its head, but just direct a lot of the funding to athletes in their formative years when they're a bit younger and potentially in that fifth to twenty fifth bracket mm. of getting results. How do you level up? Um, mm. and it's about keeping them in the sport, actually. Yeah. So and, and and making and 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 making resources available that, that would be available if you're in your national governing body. So um, so brood and not just in triathlon. We've had meetings with Cycling Australia, rowing, skateboarding. I think all sports, the Olympic model is an interesting one because the funding is limited. It comes from the taxpayer and it can only go to the top echelon of athletes, which it needs to if you're trying to win medals. I mean, that's a necessity. But there is a gap there in, in that sort of 
that developing space of, of athletes. How do you make sure you don't lose talented athletes? So yeah, been doing some work with Brew to look out, look out for them and obviously got three kids as well. That keeps me busy. So mm. yeah, there's plenty, pl- plenty to do in the Alexander household. <laughs> Good. Oh, I've got to say, um, when we've been watching the PTO coverage, um, having you and Rennie in particular on there has been uh, mm. really fantastic. So yeah. you're doing a great job with your with your comments work. And um, yeah, guys, go check out all Craig's uh, going on around the world. It's always fun to go on camps with top athletes. So uh, check it out. And Craig, we'll get you back for part part, doing part three. Uh, so stay tuned <laughs> in the year. And we'll talk about 2003 again. Promise. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. It's been awesome. fun. Cool. Thanks, mate. John, your thoughts? It's all good. As we said, uh, we'll have to get him on at some stage to do part two and part three um, because yeah, his Ironman days were pretty bloody successful. Um, with the well, that was the, the peak part of his career. It was indeed. And then, but was then you had the post Kona period where you had a few um, races in Kona that didn't quite go to plan. And I distinctly remember um, one time we interviewed him when we were outside the Kingham Hotel. Right, yeah. He was lying on a deck chair and he was like just pondering, why the hell did I go do that to myself? Yeah. And he was pretty despondent about it all. But having said that, through that period where the Kona performances kind of dropped away, he still kept a very high standard at 70.3. And even up until COVID, he was still performing really, really yeah. well as a late 40-year-old. And I think, is he still the oldest guy to win Kona? I think so. Uh, I don't know. It's I oldest. think he might be the oldest guy to potentially yes, win Kona. Certainly a lot older than what uh, the bloody young whippersnappers that have won it of, of late. So yeah, I met Crowe in 1998. Uh, and as he mentioned, on the team we had over there was Bevan Doherty and Craig and... Um, and we had a bunch of other guys as well. Paul Amy was there this one year as well. And if you'd asked me, out of these people, are any of them going to be world champions? You'd say probably Paul Amy. Um, he had some some success already. But I wouldn't have said Craig Alexander is going to be a guy that's going to go on and be one of the legends of a sport. But man, he just persevered, kept going, and just got better in a very much similar vein to Bevan Doherty. And they just got that big base of years of experience and a lot of racing so you know Crowe did a lot of racing in Europe when we were over there you know be racing most weekends and just built up that huge amount of resilience that no doubt helped his Ironman um, performance later on in life so yeah it was a pretty cool career especially when you start as an age grouper. Unfortunately it's not very obvious on the internet who the oldest they've got the oldest but it's more like who of the winners are still alive mm. um but no no and it does lots of the oldest competitors but not necessarily yeah. so yeah amazing, and, it, amazing and, and when he won that last one that was kind of before we had that next step up mm-hmm. you know like because that last one he won was the dominating performance every aspect of it because crow is always a great swim runner who mm-hmm. did okay in the bike. Mm-hmm. And I think he won the bike that year. He was, I'm, I'm almost positive he was first run. off the bike. If he wasn't first off the bike, he was like with the leader. But I seem to remember yeah, yeah. he might have been first off the yeah, bike. Yeah, I think he was swim bike run um, almost. Or maybe he didn't win the swim, but basically. Yeah. You know. Um, and that was coming after the year where he'd had a really poor bike ride the year right. before. Um, and that was the year that Macker had won it and he finished in second place, I think it was. so, uh, Or second or third. It was, um, yeah, just a bloody impressive career. Um, both... You know, did non-drafting Olympic, draft league Olympic, didn't this is who you heard didn't really conform to the the sort of system so much for, in terms of you know sticking to the. It's really interesting World when, when you series. listen to that component of the interview. Uh, if he had, 
It's hard to know because yeah, well, there's just so many good Aussies in that period. And the, uh, the selection process these days, you think, what the hell were they doing back then? But it's, it's bloody hard. When you've got 10 to 15 people that could potentially make your Olympic team, yeah, you've got your couple at the top, yep. but you want to have a system where you get your very best ones hopefully qualifying. But if they bomb out, you've got to, uh, it's so hard for them to pick teams. It's interesting when he was talking about the Sydney Olympics when you had Brad Bevan get injured yeah and then Miles Stewart Miles, was sick or something and yeah and then and obviously you lost Welchie not long before that yeah uh, and then the next three down were still bloody rock stars mm. and then you think like Macca didn't make it mm. and Macca was pretty sharp at those times wasn't he yeah and Emma Carney didn't make one of the teams and I guess um, we're going to be having on soon was McKaylee Jones multiple world champion she didn't make one of the teams she made the 2000 but so many good athletes I remember Emma, uh, Emma Snowsaw was like second reserve at one of the Olympics and she's like an Olympic champion and multiple world champion. It was very, very hard. It was very different to what it is these days. Most countries now, you, you, your teams almost pick themselves. Maybe the French are a bit different in some of the, some nations, but it's, it's generally relatively what team, straightforward. What country has the greatest depth now? Like, well, France and America on uh, on the females, and probably then Great Britain on the the women's. Yeah. And long course, it's it's a bit piggledy piggledy, but Germany obviously. But yeah, short course, um, most nations, it's it's not like what it used to be, where one year the world champs Australia got first, second, and third in the females, and probably got like fifth, seventh, and ninth as well. So um, yeah, it was good times. But no, Crow, he was a fantastic athlete. Okay, John. Let's say thank you to our patrons again. Uh, we've got Keith, Ice Lord Manning, Paul, the Swindler Tuck, and Michael Sylvester Parrott. Okay, if you want to become a patron of the show, go to www.imtalk.me. You go to the website. It's all pretty obvious. For those that are patrons, it really means a lot to us, and we really appreciate your support. If you want some coaching, go to coachjohnnewsome.com, uh, epiccamp.com for any of his epic camps. Uh, for anything I do, bevanjamesos.com. And if you want to email us, you can email us at imtalkpodcast at gmail.com. What's your goss, Jombo, other than the moustache? What's my goss? Did my first ever gravel bike ride at the weekend. It was a bit of a six-hour bloody journey through the, the hills of uh, Banks Peninsula. And the one thing I discovered about gravel bike riding um, was a couple of things. One, don't really like the descending that much. It's pretty hard work descending on a gravel bike. Uh, Just juddery, eh? Oh, there's a couple of sections. We hit some corrugated stuff. And the thing is, you, when you're out on a road bike... You get a, your, your speed back a lot on the descents because, you know, you're just humming it down there and your average speed's up. Whereas on the gravel bike, you don't really get it back. So our average speed for six hours was 16 kilometres an hour. Oh, really? <laughs> but we did do 2,600 metres of climbing. It was basically hills the whole way. Um, but it was cool. Just going on new adventures this far into my career, still finding new roads to traverse. Um, so it's kind of cool. It does open you up to a different type of riding, doesn't it? It does. Bike. Yeah, yeah. You know, because mountain bikes are a bit too slow, aren't they? Mm. You know, if you're doing long riding, I suppose if you're doing off-road, but... Um, it's a great touring option. Yeah, you know, totally. If you, if you were to go to Europe, you, if you want to go on a road bike, you'd have to pick your particular routes. If you're on a gravel, you just do whatever. Just go, right, I'm going there. I don't care if it turns to shingle. Do you have any other adventures you want to do on a gravel bike? Um, well, I'm going to do Lengthen New Zealand in a couple of years, and I've just got to decide if I do that on a gravel bike or a mountain bike. And do so, that as a what, a camp or is it just like... No, just do it with a couple of guys. Oh. Turning 50, getting old. How many, How long will that take you? Uh, we'll probably take 20, I think it was 21 days I think I mapped out. Oh, how long did the epic camp take you? 15, but we were in a reasonably direct route. Yeah. Um, whereas this one, you go off-road quite, you know, you sort of zigzag your way down. Wow. 
Right, you, Baron? Anything happening in your world? Funny story from my week. Uh, my band played on Saturday night. I played the nice. Wonder Bar. Have you been to the Wonder in Bar? In Littleton. Yeah. Oh, I've had New Year's there one year. Oh, yeah. it's a quite a, it's quirky. Quirky, yeah. Yeah, but what a beautiful night because it looks overlooks the bloody the harbour. Mm-hmm. Absolutely stunning. So anyway, uh, the band played, good gig, playing long, mm-hmm. get to the last song, and while we're playing, I can smell burning smell. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, well, this is rock star. This is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, we're blowing up the speakers. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking, yeah, they're burning down the house. But it was a funny burning cell, and I couldn't yeah. really figure out. But I was just thinking, let's just get to the end of the song and say, hey, what's with that burning cell? Yeah. <laughs> because we don't want the one about to burn down. We finished the last song. Everyone cheers. It was kind of good times. And then some girl, I go, what was that smell? And some girl goes, my hair caught on fire. <laughs> Oh wow! So she must have been dancing or something. They had a candlelight behind her, yeah, and the hair caught on fire. Wow! She was. So that was—I wasn't a rock star after all. It's just no. a bit of health and safety. Yeah. So that was a bit of fun. And other than that, John, uh, just back to life then, there, isn't it? Mm. Back to work. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I'm going away tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> You've had a big break, haven't you? Oh, you're on and off, on and off. That's a hard Go one. hard in between times. That's a hard life for some. Anyway, team, we'll, we'll wrap it up. We're going to be back next week and we're going to be doing another Legends-type interview as well. Uh, and then we'll kind of get back into the normal format because it's just quiet time of the year. So here we go. Let's wrap it up, John. I'm Russ. I'm Mendo. Train hard. Train smart. Kia, Kia